Well, a good bit of my uh, childhood was spent actually on the water over in Jacksonville. Uh, a good bit of that time was spent uh, fishing, doing that a lot. Uh, as a family, one of uh, the favorite spots where we would always uh, tend to go was just in the St. John's River, right off the Dames Point Bridge. There's a little uh, hole we kind of fish in uh, for black drum. But let's be honest, when you're fishing, you're just really fishing for whatever will bite. Uh, but it's a bit of a, a tricky spot as you're off the main uh, channel there. And so you're battling tide and currents and trying to figure out kind of just exactly how to get anchored because in order to bottom fish, you've got to be stationary, right? And so here we were uh, one time, I recall as a child, and, and we're fishing there. And uh, I just happened to kind of glance over to my right. It's right off of an island that runs uh, right through the river there. And I just happened to notice this palm tree that had this just kind of weird bend in it, uh, which I guess to some degree meant the fishing really wasn't that great if I'm staring at palm trees. Uh, but here I was, I just kind of happened to notice it, just sticks in my mind. So just time continues uh, fishing on and I happen to glance over and I'm like, hey, where'd that palm tree go? <laughs> and I kind of look back and it's behind us a little bit. And really, unbeknownst to us, I guess, the, the anchor had, had broken loose and was just slowly, ever so slowly, maybe the tide had shifted and we were drifting. Right? Not super noticeable until you actually found a fixed point of reference and realized, hey, we're not where we were. Well, I want to ask this morning, what do you think it means to be faithful to God in a culture that's drifting? In a, this everly increasing, pluralistic, shifting culture that we find ourselves in, how do we be faithful to a God who never changes when everything feels like it's changing around us? And maybe the more important question is, how do we as followers of Jesus Christ recognize when we're spiritually drifting when maybe our, our spiritual anchor, if you will, has come loose in our connection to Jesus Christ. Now, for, for centuries uh, in the West, and, and particularly even here in the United States, uh, Christians have been recognized as being a vital part of society, maybe even contributing to the, the betterment of society, making uh, a difference, shaping and influencing society. But would you agree that that's really not the case anymore? So how do we live well in the culture that we find ourselves in? Well, thankfully, we have God's word. And we'll find as we explore God's word that we are really not experiencing anything new. The experience of the majority of God's people for the majority of scripture is that of living as a minority in society that at best didn't understand them, and then often actively opposed them. And so that's why we started this new series in the book of Daniel that we're calling uh, When Kingdoms Collide. Uh, because in many ways, Daniel is a practical case study in the principles of living as a missionary in a hostile culture, like we saw in our last study in 1 Peter. In fact, you remember what we saw, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, you could say in culture, honorable, 
that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So in our last study, we saw these first century Christ followers struggling through intense suffering and persecution under Roman rule. And now, in the book of Daniel, we're going to journey back some 2,500 years ago and see that God's people were experiencing life in a culture that was actively colliding with their own. The people of God had been taken uh, into Babylon after Jerusalem was besieged and ransacked. And then we saw last week the king took literally the the cream of the crop, uh, likely teenagers, young uh, men into uh, captivity, marched them over a, a thousand miles, basically as prisoners of war. And he relocates them. He reeducates them. He renames them. And then he tries to reculture them to the ways of the Babylonians. Well, if you've got a copy of God's word, let me invite you to grab it. Find Daniel chapter one. If you're willing and able, I invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word this morning. And we'll pick up the story in verse eight. Daniel chapter one, beginning in verse eight. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king who assigned you food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward uh, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. Verse 14, so he listened to them in this matter, and he tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for the youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when Nebuchadnezzar had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding, which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Would you pray with me? Father, would you just open our eyes to the reality of what you would have us see in your word this morning? Father, there's truths and challenges for us to to think on and, and to dwell on that shape how we should live some thousands of years later as Christians in a Babylonian culture. Uh, God, we come to your word not merely seeking information. God, we just don't want to know more. 
But Father, we come seeking transformation that we would be made more in the image of your Son, in the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so Holy Spirit, do what only you can do in these moments. Allow me to get out of the way so that your words would penetrate the hearts of your people, drawing us closer to you, we pray in your great name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, so Daniel and his buddies realized, hey, we're not in Jerusalem anymore. Jerusalem was a safe and a familiar place. The landscape and the architecture, the temple being the center of that, pointing people's minds and attention to God. All of the artwork and and literature and music would have been centered on the God of Israel, the one true God, a culture that respected and embraced him. But not so in Babylon. In Babylon, there wasn't one God, but there were many gods. There weren't laws that regulated morality. All the philosophies and religions and ideology in Babylon would have been totally up for grabs. Does that sound familiar? What what city do you think we live in? See, whether you like it or not, the reality is that when you woke up and opened your eyes this morning, you woke up in Babylon. We're not in Jerusalem anymore. And so what do we as the people of God do when when we realize the city and the culture that we're living in is less and less like Jerusalem and more and more like Babylon each and every day? Well, I would commend to you that we have much to learn from these first exiles of Israel. Daniel and his friends, young men, likely teenage boys. And one challenge from from Daniel for for all of us living in this increasingly post-Christian culture is this. We're we're challenged to, to stand out for Jesus in the right ways, at the right time, for the right reasons. We're going to see that over and over again throughout Daniel, uh, that we're called to stand out for Jesus, but to do it in the right way, at the right time, and for the right reason. See, that's the calling of the church. Yes, even particularly in Babylon, that we are called to stand out for Jesus. And so we'll walk through and, and grab some challenges from our text this morning. And the first is this, be challenged not to despair, but to lean in to hope. Despite what it may feel like all around us, the world really is not spiraling out of control. And I get when when we look and we see what's going on in, in the world or maybe even in our city, maybe even in our home, it can feel that way. But to know the sovereignty of God is to know that God is always at work. And I can imagine that that's hard at times to process in your life. It's often hard to see God's plan when we're living in Babylon. I imagine that's exactly what Daniel and his buddies felt. It may have felt a lot like people living in Ukraine today. Can you imagine when all of a sudden your world and culture is turned upside down? Yet how amazing to see Ukrainian believers gathering together in worship, 
singing songs of praise, running into the culture of the, the, the chaos, rather, of the culture around them with hope and to say, hey, I'm here to help. How can we serve? How can we care? How can we love one another? One of our MTW missionaries and, and pastors there in the Ukraine last week tweeted out on Saturday night, planning my sermon still, just hoping the church will be there tomorrow to preach it in. And I thought, man, what resiliency, what hope to say, hey, hey, hey I'm, I'm right here. Because of Jesus Christ, we are here and we will stand and we will gather. But how do you do that in the midst of such chaos? How did Daniel and his friends do that? Because the people of God don't fill their hearts with despair. People of God, we don't spend our times whining about how we wish things were different. We're a people of hope. We know that God is at work no matter how dark it gets. We know that God is always sovereignly working his plan of the advancement of his kingdom for his glory and for the good of his people. That's got to be the truth that anchors our soul. There was an infantry group that was making its approach to Normandy Beach on D-Day it wasn't the first group in, so they were able to actually see some of the mass casualties of their buddies that were uh, littering the beach. They knew their fate. And so when their landing craft hit the beach and the operator pulls uh, the, the lever, it's being pinged with enemy fire. The sounds of bullets hitting uh, the metal door are filling their ears, and as that lever is pulled... Nothing happens. The door is stuck. Now they're stuck there, and the fire is actually intensifying, raining down uh, on them. Can you imagine what's going on through the soldiers' minds? They've likely gone through as they've approached our, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Would you strengthen us? Would you protect us? Would you be with us to, to what in the world, God, are you doing right now? Maybe even cursing his name and feeling, God, have you abandoned us here? Here we are. We're, we're stuck right now. Our equipment doesn't work. We're going to die. The fire continues to rain down on them. And then the door finally falls open. And all 30 of those soldiers run up onto the beach safely. And every one of them survive. Why? Because apparently the enemy guns were exhausted firing on their door. Listen, church, we never fully know what God is doing. We never know what he is up to, no matter how dark the culture around us gets, no matter how difficult in your life your circumstances become, no matter how hard and difficult it is to stand. The people of God do not despair because our God is sovereign. He is in control. He's always at work. Sure, it's hard to live in this world. I'm certainly not denying that it's difficult. Parts of my own story, I could give you testimony that resonate with the difficulty of life in this world. We certainly face heartache and pain and struggle and disappointment. We're agonized by living in a broken world, but God is at work. 
And even in our text this morning, we see multiple instances where Daniel was able to hope. Why? Because it says, hey, God gave his favor. God gave his compassion. God gave learning and wisdom and skill and understanding. And did you remember? He gave it 10 times over. Why? Because the sovereign hand of God is always at work, giving us exactly what we need supernaturally in order to live in culture. So listen, Christ follower, do you have that kind of hope? Are you trusting uh, that the promises of God, that he is in control and he is at work, both in your story and in the culture that you find yourself living in? So our first challenge is take heart. Don't despair. Secondly, let me challenge you to purposely commit not to withdraw from culture, but rather to engage. And that may sound challenging because make no mistake, really the, the culture and the spirit of Babylon is around us all the time. And every Babylonian culture always has an agenda. And that agenda is to influence and overtake every sphere of that culture, sexuality, politics, morality, philosophy, education, parenting, gender, the list could go on and on. And do we not see that all around us today? The culture, the spirit of Babylon pressing into every area that we live and exist in. And it may seem that living in our modern day Babylon, we really only have two options. The first is we can strive for assimilation. Here we are, we find ourselves in this new culture, so, so we, we just are going to get along, so in order to get along, we're just going to go along, right? The, the stream is flowing this way, and so I'm just a part of that, that stream, and so in order to fit in and, and just kind of belong, I'm just going just gonna to float that way, right? When in Rome, we're in a crazy culture, not of our own choosing, and so the choice is, well... I guess I've just got to be absorbed into that culture. Besides, it's exhausting swimming upstream. Why would I keep wanting to go a direction that's so uh, difficult? And then at times we can even uh, look around in culture and go, hey, it actually seems pretty fun. Hey, the lights are always brighter in Babylon. The glitz and the glamour all around us kind of wooing uh, us in. People are always smiling in Babylon. Seemingly always partying it up. So, so why not just blend in? Why not just join in and live it up? But the second option is we can resolve to isolation from culture. I think this is where we kind of circle the wagons. Well, let's kind of cut off this crazy culture by building up walls, Right? It may even seem right to do or holy to do because didn't God himself say, come out from among them and, and be ye separate? So let's kind of holy huddle together and let's get these walls built up to, to protect ourselves. And every now and then, when it feels safe enough, we'll lower the drawbridge so that we can march out with our picket signs in our next boycott only then to retreat back in to the safety of the walls around us. 
Well, could I suggest this morning that there's actually a a third option? Rather than being assimilated or or rather than uh, isolation, uh, Daniel chooses to move into the culture unafraid, and he does so on a mission of restoration. Daniel gives us such a powerful example of how to live in a collision of culture, and he does so through engagement. How could he do that? I think he did that because he knew that what he had inside of him with a relationship with God was far more fulfilling and satisfying and powerful than what the culture around him had to offer. He weighed his options, and it paled in comparison. Why assimilate or isolate if we have something better? And church, with the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in us, we don't have to be afraid of culture. In fact, the same powerful spirit that raised Christ from the dead has been placed inside you and I, and that spirit compels us to engage to move towards the darkness with the light of hope, to be salt and to be light in this culture that easily is corrupting and decaying all around us. We move towards the culture and not away. Why? Because we have a mission. And that mission compels us to engage. So understand clearly, God did not put us in Babylon to live in a bunker. God put us in Babylon in order to love and serve our neighbors. We're not here by mistake. He could have easily at the point of salvation just called us home, right? Have you ever wondered why? Why why leave us here? There's a mission at work, and it wasn't to bunker up for safety, It was to move into culture, engaging, renewing, restoring the culture. And yes, with wisdom, we do that cautiously. But make no mistake, we also do that courageously. With caution on one hand and courage on the other, we engage culture on mission from our Savior Now, some of you may have been reading along with me and saying, well, hey, Pastor Todd, Daniel took his stand. I I saw it. He said, I will not eat the king's food. That's our guy. He took his stand against culture. He put his foot down. He put culture in its place. Are you reading the story closely? You'll see that Daniel actually entered into culture He submitted to be educated in Babylon through all of its culture and learning and literature. That education would clearly have been polytheistic and pagan and completely out of step with God's word and his standards. You also remember that Daniel didn't fight back about getting renamed. A name we saw last week that actually honored God was now replaced with a Babylonian name. I think he said, you can call me whatever you want. I know where my identity lies, right? But you see what else he did? He also entered the culture by actually serving in the government. 
Here, Daniel, a follower of God, working for the good of a pagan king who actually destroyed his entire homeland and many of the people. And at the end of this section, in verse 21, you'll see that Daniel, from the time that he was appointed to serve in Babylon around 601 B.C., did so faithfully all the way until around 536 B.C. He's the chief official in the courts of Babylon. In a pagan nation, one of the most important, powerful public officials for about 38 years was a follower of the one true God. He moved in to culture. So how do we engage ourselves in the culture? We do so by learning from the example of others. And if it weren't enough for you just to go, well, hey, that's just... One instance in the Old Testament, well, well, let's think about what our Savior did. All right, we can go to Jesus. Let's go to Jesus. Hey, praise God, he didn't stay in heaven, right? What did he do? In his incarnation, literally puts on flesh, steps into the broken mess of humanity and says, I'll become just like them in order to rescue them. And then I'm going to send them out on that same mission. Stepping into the mess with a message of hope to engage those who desperately need to hear. Calls a people to himself to say, you will be my followers, you'll be my disciples, and I want you to do the same. Move forward on mission with a message of hope. The third thing we see here. Our challenge is to make a covenant not to be defiled, but to stand on conviction. I've clung to verse 8 since I was around Daniel's age, but Daniel purposed, Daniel resolved, Daniel made a promise in his heart not to defile himself. Daniel purposed, he Predecided, if you will. Daniel draws a line and he does so on conviction. What's conviction? Conviction is a predetermined decision based on God's word. Let me give you something to hold on to here. A conviction is not something you have, but rather a conviction is something that has you, something that so grips you to your core that says, on this I will stand. Convictions are immovable in our hards. These are those God says it, that settles it kind of statements that compel us to stand firm. And for Daniel, he says, I can't budge on this one. And he draws the line on food. Of all the other areas he was challenged in, why food? It seems so small and insignificant. Now, I'll be honest, I don't think Daniel's goal was to be an early trendsetter and an adopter of veganism. (laughs) The king's food was way better. The king's food was likely even more nutritious. So why reject it? Was it because all the food in Babylon was dedicated to idols? Maybe. Was it because uh, the food wasn't kosher? It was actually grown and, and harvested in a pagan land? It's a good possible answer. 
Was Daniel strictly adhering to the the Jewish dietary restrictions that that were set up by God himself in the book of Leviticus when it came to hooved or unclean or any number of, of animals? It's possible. I'm not so certain that's the answer. You know, I think Daniel took his stand when it came to the king's food. Daniel wouldn't eat the king's food because to sit at the king's table meant to enter into covenant with the king. See, in Eastern culture, to sit at the table meant you were in an intimate relationship with that person. And Daniel belonged to God and to God alone. He was one of God's covenant children. He had made a pledge already to have an intimate relationship with one and one only, the God of Israel. See, Daniel's resolve, Daniel's purpose was not to pledge allegiance or to enter into a covenant with any other king other than his one and only great God and king. It just shows up over a seemingly small decision, a small issue of what to eat, but one with huge implications into Daniel's spiritual life. I love what Craig Rochelle says about our small decisions. He says, a life of faithfulness is made up of hundreds and thousands of small decisions that compound over time that actually lead us in the right direction. It's not just the big things, but it's often the small things that no one sees that result in the big impact that everyone wants. I wholeheartedly believe that Daniel purposing in his heart to not defile himself over the king's food, a seemingly small issue sets the stage for him to be able to stand some 70 years later over the larger issue of prayer when the stakes are now life and death. You need to understand this morning, the decisions you're making today are gonna determine the stories you'll be telling tomorrow. And these decisions matter You want to learn from Daniel? Then start with the small decisions that you make every day. And when you decide every day, it's going to be God first. Matthew 6, right? Seek him first. His righteousness, everything else he says will fall into place. When you decide it will be God first, you will stand on that conviction And you want to know the key to confidence in your faith during the hard times is actually through consistency with God in the good times. We get the strength to stand when the stakes are high, not when we decide in those moments, but when we've decided decades earlier, I'm going to go with Jesus, even over small issues. On him I will stand, and I will not move. So let me ask you, faith family, what are the convictions that hold you? Where have you drawn a line in the sand? But where, where will you say, I will live in Babylon, but Babylon will not live in me. I've given my heart and my life and my allegiance to King Jesus. Friends, this decision has to be made ahead of time. This is a pre-decision. 
on who we are going to be. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, that's where your Christ-like character is firm, is formed. I resolve to stand firm. I will not drift. My allegiance is to the true king. In the fourth century, as the story is told, there was an Eastern monk by the name of Telemachus who spent his time in a monastery literally just cultivating a life of prayer and service to God. But it was in one of those times of prayer that he felt the Lord speaking to his heart, calling him to go to the great city of Rome. He, for the life of him, couldn't figure out why God would call him to go to Rome, but he felt it was undeniable. And so he packed a bag, threw it over his shoulder, and headed off to the empire's capital. When he arrived there, he found the city abuzz with activity. It was a festival season, which included gladiator fights that were planned for that same day. So thousands had gathered in the Colosseum to watch these warriors do battle with one another, to do battle with uh, animals. It was then that Telemachus understood why God had called him to Rome, because that little monk couldn't believe what he was seeing. Just four centuries after Jesus Christ had walked the earth, a civilized nation like Rome had its citizens killing one another for entertainment. Telemachus made his way down to the arena's edge and threw a leg over and then a second and landed on the floor of that arena. He goes out to the center of the amphitheater where he positions himself between two gladiators. He raises his hand and cries out, in the name of Christ, stop. Some of the crowd laughs at him. Others are perturbed at the disruption. One of the gladiators strikes Telemachus in the torso uh, with his sword, sending him sprawling into the dust. Yet he gets up again and repeats the same thing, in the name of Christ, stop. This time the crowd had had enough. They began to chant, kill him, and so one of the gladiators takes his sword and runs it through this monk's stomach. He falls into the dust, and the sand begins to turn red as blood pours out onto the floor of the Colosseum. And with his dying breath, Telemachus weakly cried out, in the name of Christ, stop. A hush actually came over the arena in those moments as he died. And in silence, one by one, the crowd began to exit. Telemachus' story doesn't end there. If it did, it would be a fairly tragic and pointless piece of history Rather, Telemachus' stand made such an impact that within weeks of his death, gladiatorial fights in the Colosseum were banned. Where he made his stand, that was the last one that ever took place in that arena. His death was not in vain. The bold action that he took based on his convictions literally changed history. I don't know about you, but I, with all of my heart, would rather be remembered for standing out than forgotten for blending in. Is that true for you?
Listen, we don't stand out to make a statement. We stand out because our allegiance is to our king. We don't stand out to draw attention to ourselves. We stand out to point people to him.